Welcome to Market Matters, our markets podcast on making sense, the hub for JP Morgan corporate and investment bank podcasts. In each episode of Market Matters, we discuss the latest news and trends shaping markets today. Hi, I'm Eloise Goulder, head of the Data Assets and Alpha Group here at JP Morgan. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Chris Andrew, who is head of market structure in EMEA and is part of our electronic trading business. And we want to really delve into equity market structure dynamics and importantly this time, discuss the emergence and the behaviour of the European retail investor. And it's worth noting for our listeners that this is the second time that, Chris, you've appeared on this podcast series and the two of us have discussed market structure together. The last time was back in March. So, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to speak again. Thank you, Eloise. It is lovely to be back. Shall we start by touching on market structure as a whole and the backdrop for European liquidity before we turn to the European retail investor? Yes, why not? Let's do that. Great. So, If I were to summarise our last conversation, Chris, you were discussing equity market liquidity and turnover ratios across the globe, and you were really remarking that European turnover or the European turnover ratio has declined on a multi-year view, which is in marked contrast really to other regions across the globe like the States and parts of Asia. And we were discussing the reasons that that decline in liquidity in Europe could be the case. So, Chris, can you start by updating us as to how that picture, how liquidity and turnover ratios in Europe have evolved since then? Yes, well, I'm afraid so. I haven't really seen any improvement since we last spoke. After an uptick in 2022, which was largely due to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the numbers in the first half of 2023 have at best fallen back to where they were in 2021. And I think they may well sink below that in the second half, which doesn't suggest much sign of a recovery. Ah, okay. So still a bleak picture, unfortunately. I know we discussed the possible reasons for such depressed European liquidity last time we caught up, and we were contrasting that decline in European turnover ratios with the rise in turnover ratios in the US over the last five plus years. And I think we posed this idea that US markets, on the one hand, have really benefited from that virtuous cycle of better stock market returns in the first place, and of course, the greater, faster growing tech segment in the US, but then also benefiting from more buyers from tracker funds and ETFs in US markets, and then more buyers from the retail investor in the US. And all of this, of course, leading to greater liquidity in markets, and that attracting more trading activity from quant funds, who of course rely on that liquidity and the lower transaction costs, and that leading to yet greater liquidity, and so on in this virtuous cycle in US markets. While we were contrasting that with Europe and European markets, where arguably it suffered the opposite, more of a vicious cycle in terms of turnover over the last few years. Yes. If I remember correctly, I think you were arguing the relative decline in European turnover might be more of a cyclical phenomenon. So more to do with the underperformance of the European stock market. Well, I was really exploring this idea that that decline might be more structural. Given that European markets have underperformed US markets by, I think, about 10% since we last sat down together in March, I guess the decline in European turnover could be a function of either the cyclical, the underperformance, or the structural over that period. I guess we don't quite know who's right on that one. Yes, that's true. I mean, it's annoying, isn't it? But um, have you considered maybe that underperformance itself is actually structural? 
Well, it's a good point. Underperformance in Europe itself being due to structural factors. But then I would argue there are lots of fundamental reasons behind Europe's underperformance since March, linked, of course, to much weaker growth and weaker PMIs and higher inflation data in Europe versus the US. So I'm still leaning more on the cyclical side of that. But I guess the debate will rage on, Chris. But anyway, going back to your more structural arguments behind the decline in European liquidity over the years, can you remind me and and our listeners what those factors holding Europe back might be? I guess you could argue that one factor is the relatively low retail participation, but I think that's really as much of a symptom of these structural factors as a factor in itself. But aside from that, I think it's probably some combination of these things happening at once. So Firstly, I think there's some evidence, particularly when we look at the timing of the decline in turnover ratios, that the UK's decision to leave the European Union has potentially damaged the perception of Europe. And that's as a whole, by the way, it's not just the UK, in the eyes of institutional investors by making it seem less integrated and therefore less capable of competing with the US capital markets in terms of scale. That said, I think investors could have easily overlooked that if there was a pipeline of relatively new, fast-growing companies in which to invest in Europe. So I think that kind of ageing universe of stocks that we see listed in the main European indices is part of the problem. And with that age comes less of that potential for a difference of opinion about what the stock is worth. And you know it's that difference of opinion that drives trading in those shares. So less difference of opinion, less trading. By the way, I think there's at least a fair amount of consensus now that making more institutional capital available for growth enterprises is part of the solution to that problem, albeit one that will take many years to bear fruit. And you can see that consensus reflected in some of the recent announcements made by the UK Chancellor, as well as many of the aspirations of the EU Capital Markets Programme. All of that said, when we think about this well-recognised goal of providing more capital to smaller companies, there does seem to be a recognition that retail investors can play an important role in that. But I think it it potentially needs to come along with some kind of concerted effort to attract institutional capital as well. And I think that's what we're seeing, particularly in the UK. Thank you so much, Chris. It's so interesting and helpful to understand those structural factors that may be behind Europe's relative decline in liquidity. And I think you provided us with a really great segue into discussing the retail investor because you alluded there, Chris, to the relatively low retail share of volume in Europe. And I know that last time we spoke, you had begun to look at European retail activity and you wanted to do more work on that front. So, Chris, did you get much further since we last spoke? Yes. I mean, I think we've been able to fill in a few more pieces of the puzzle since we last spoke. So, Back in March, we'd produced some initial statistics, and they were based on data from segmented European retail mechanisms. So these are places where we're able to see retail activity identified explicitly on our market data feeds. Since then, we've been able to combine those data with other market data, notably relating to the levels of fragmentation in different European markets. And we've done that in order to make some inference about the level of retail activity in markets where we don't see the activity identified explicitly. But at the same time, you've also dug deeper into the explicit retail data to see what we can learn from that. And you use the word fragmentation there. What exactly do you mean by that? So, yes, that's a good question. So we use the term fragmentation to refer to how dispersed equity trading is across different types of trading facility, as opposed to being concentrated on the main listing or we talk about it as the primary exchange. And that's useful because large institutional investors tend to use brokers like JP Morgan, of course, 
that have access to many different venues and can trade across multiple venues to complete a client's order as efficiently as possible. The upshot is that institutional trading activity tends to present in a fragmented or dispersed fashion across lots of different trading venues. Thank you. So that's what institutional trading activity tends to do. So how does that compare to the way that retail orders are usually executed in Europe? Well, yes, I guess that's the point, really. In Europe, outside of retail-specific mechanisms, a lot of retail orders are still just sent straight to the main listing exchange in the country where the retail investor lives. And there, that activity blends in with all of the other activity on that exchange. That activity can be difficult to identify. So what we did was to explore whether there was a useful relationship between the lack of fragmentation or the concentration of trading on the primary and the level of retail activity in different markets. So where more of a country's trading activity is concentrated on its national exchange or primary exchange, rather than those alternative trading venues, then you think there's an indication that there's higher retail trading activity. Yes, it's it's exactly that, at least for the main European markets. And by using those data and combining them with data for markets where we do have a good idea about the market share, we were able to estimate the retail market share in countries where we only had the fragmentation data to go on. And that's allowed us to build up a more complete picture of European retail activity than we've ever had before, at least at the country level. It's not clear yet how much that approach can tell you about instrument level activity, but I think that's something we will try in the future. Thank you. Well, that's fascinating analysis. And doesn't it highlight also the fact that when there isn't a readily or an easily available answer as to what the retail investor is doing in Europe, for example, that you need to be quite creative and thoughtful around how you can at least approximate that info. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think when we started this, we really thought it was impossible yeah. to work out what was happening in, in European retail. And I guess just by putting little pieces of the puzzle in place, starting with the data we had, incorporating other data, adding more bits of data, you know, it, I've been quite surprised by how much we've been able to learn. So it's definitely an interesting case study in how sometimes things seem impossible. Once you start gathering the data, over time, the problem becomes a little more tractable. Fantastic. So let's cut to the chase then. So what have you learned from this analysis? So I, I think one of the takeaways would be that, yes, if you compare Europe as a whole to a market like the US, and it's true to say that retail activity is not as prevalent, But that masks a lot of difference in the levels of retail activity across different countries in Europe. Right. And if we think about the percentages of intraday trading that retail activity makes up, then at one end of the spectrum, we have a country like Italy, where we'd estimate retail activity around 20%. And then Germany is also a very big retail market, for instance, and we'd estimate that at around 16%. And then maybe Sweden, Switzerland, the Netherlands and Portugal are also relatively active and we'd probably say they had market shares of around 10%. Just one note, in the Swiss count, we probably include a lot of wealth management activity. Mm-hmm. So not just traditional kind of mom and pop retail activity in that. Yeah. And then I guess just at the lower end of the spectrum, we'd see most other developed European markets, including the UK, with a retail market share of around 5 to 6%. Well, those are amazing data points. And Italy is a fascinating one, isn't it? The idea that about 20% of intraday volumes come from the retail investor in that market and that that's far higher than for other European markets with, I think you said, the possible exception of Germany, which is also up there on retail share. So, Chris, have you been able to explain why the Italian retail share is so exceptional? 
Well, I don't know if it's really an explanation as such, but I did get a little anecdotal evidence from a colleague who happens to be Italian, by the way, but also has an interest in the European retail market. And his view was that, in general, Italian retail participation is very low. And in part, that's due to the relatively generous pension provisions in the country, and that creates less incentive for individuals to invest for their own future. But his view was that the median Italian, if you like, is not active in retail trading of financial instruments. But a relatively small minority are, and they're very active traders indeed. And they go about that on comparatively sophisticated retail platforms that help to facilitate that. That's a really interesting take. And doesn't that also speak to this idea that the retail investor isn't just one group of individuals with specific characteristics, but actually it's capturing multiple different people and groups with very different characteristics. And so, you know, some of them will be older, some of them will be younger, some of them will be high net worth, others will not. And so it's really important to be aware of that when we're looking at these statistics. I think that's absolutely right. I think it's really tempting to kind of lump all retail investors in as if if they were one homogenous group that all behave the same way. And I think increasingly, as we look at the the data and we understand that part of the market in, in a bit more detail, I think it's becoming more and more obvious that that's just not the case. Yeah. So I'd imagine there are multiple factors driving the retail investor to trade in stocks and shares, some of them being this emergence of low cost or no cost trading platforms here in Europe, other factors relating to the improved access to information and tools to help model which stocks and shares to buy. I would imagine that given these trends, there has been a rise in the share of retail volumes in Europe in in a similar way that we've seen in the US. I mean, Chris, do you have any evidence to support that thesis? Well, I I think there's some evidence of limited growth in retail. I mean, it, it does look, although in many European markets, the share of trading activity that we can attribute to retail investors is above its pre-pandemic levels. Right. But I would say it's not presenting as any kind of seismic change yet. Okay, well, that's really helpful context. And I guess, by contrast, in the US, we do see quite a significant, quite a meaningful uptick in retail share of volumes in 2020 and since then. So that's very helpful to know. Coming back to the factors that really drive the retail investor to engage, and perhaps factors that will continue to drive retail investors to engage more over time, one topic I'm fascinated by is the democratisation of content or the democratisation of financial content. When you think that so many eminent investors and hedge fund founders, for example, are now posting their views and even their rationales and theses around stocks and sectors and and macro trades online on platforms that, in theory, anyone can access. I would be tempted to assume that this trend will only increase, and this is only going to increase the number of retail participants and perhaps quasi-retail, people who are doing this almost professionally, to be active and involved in investing. What's your take on that? I think that's quite plausible, actually. I mean, interestingly, that term is also used by the the European Commission when it talks about its goals for a European consolidated tape. So they talk about the democratisation of market data. And I think that's not a bad way of putting it. I think arguably the cost and complexity of getting real-time market data onto a retail platform is likely very prohibitive for a lot of firms at the moment. So it's going to be really interesting to see how retail brokers make use of the consolidated tape. Although I think that's going to depend a lot on the price point of that tape, and we don't know what that is yet. But certainly, you know, I think that could 
drive an increase in retail trading by just making it more immediate for people. Yeah, no, that's a great point. So going back to your data then, we have this variation in retail participation from country to country with Italy and Germany, standout countries really, in terms of retail participation within Europe. And then presumably within those countries, we also see quite a lot of variation from sector to sector or stock to stock in terms of what is heavily traded by retail. Yes, absolutely. I think that's definitely one of the other takeaways from the analysis for me. The difference between the stocks with the highest retail activity and those with the lowest within a country can be quite stark. Again, at the larger end of the spectrum, retail market shares are 40 to 50% and not uncommon in the FTSE 250 shares and 20 to 30% in other European indices, particularly household names. Then other shares will be barely touched by retail, showing more like 2 to 3% of retail activity. Wow, that's an amazing disparity. So honing in on the UK, we're obviously sitting here in the UK at the moment. Is it right to conclude that there's particular interest from the retail investor in the smaller and the mid-cap segments within UK markets? Yeah, I, I, I think that's true. I think, you know, we've discussed this in, in the past, I think for the reason that a lot, a lot of those stocks are more familiar to people. So Certainly, if we look at Q123, I would put retail participation overall across the FTSE 250 at around 15%. And that's set against just 6% for the FTSE 100, for instance. Such a difference. Thank you. And I guess that leads to my next question, which is, are there any defining characteristics of stocks or sectors that really lead the retail investor to want to engage and to want to trade in stocks? Do you have a view on that? Yes, I, I think the best way I could describe the shares they favour would be as a mixture of the familiar and the cyclical. So, you know, kind of the familiar, going back to some of those stocks in the FTSE 250, their household names. So lots of things like airlines, for instance, that easily capture investors' imagination and they, they interact with on a day-to-day -day basis. But yeah. plenty of other stocks where the business is not necessarily one that they might know or interact with in their daily lives. So think oil exploration firms, for instance. I mean... What do you think about that, Eloise? Does, does that fit with some of your experience in, say, the US market? Yeah, well, I really like your characterization there that the retail investor engages in the familiar and the cyclical, because I think our US retail trading activity data does also support that idea. I mean, post-pandemic, we've seen a huge chunk of US retail trading activity across the tech segment and the large mega cap tech segment, which of course are very familiar, and also the consumer discretionary and consumer cyclical spaces, which are probably both familiar and cyclical. So I do think our data across US retail trading activity supports that idea as well. And doesn't this question about defining characteristics also really speak to the different types of retail investors that we were discussing before, the fact that you'll have different cohorts with perhaps different rationales for trading in stocks and shares, and perhaps therefore going for different attributes. So for example, among one cohort, perhaps the younger cohort, trading in stocks and shares is almost seen as an alternative to trading in crypto assets. And perhaps there, there's this desire to look for depressed stocks, beaten up stocks, more likely to be smaller cap stocks, 
turnaround stories. Perhaps really the meme stock phenomena is more in that category. But on the other hand, perhaps a different set of retail investor might be looking for longer term winners, more stable winners to support their pension pot and their retirement. And they might be the ones going for the mega cap tech stocks, for example. On the other hand, some retail investors might just want a piece of their favourite brand. So think investing in luxury stocks. Perhaps there's a desire to do that because there's this affinity with that brand. So overall, I tend to agree with your thesis, Chris, that it's a combination of the familiar and the cyclical. But I also think we can't ignore the fact that there will be multiple different groups of retail investors with slightly different needs. That's interesting. Do you think there's an argument to be made that retail investors are sort of somewhat unshackled in terms of the kinds of risks they can take. In other words, they're in a way freer than some institutional investors to make certain investments. Well, that's definitely true. And perhaps you could even argue that the retail investor can therefore exploit a a sort of risk premium that other investors can't exploit because they are bound by investment principles investment review committees and that sort of thing, and perhaps can't justify owning stocks that have a very low chance of succeeding or of growing or of thriving. But the retail investor, of course, isn't shackled, to use your word, by any of those factors. So perhaps can exploit some sort of a risk premium there. I think that's interesting. It kind of supports this idea that I'm hearing increasingly that retail activity really can be part of the answer to getting growth enterprises funded in the early years. If you listen to some of the output of the UK government's initiatives on getting investment to smaller companies, there's clearly an effort to position institutional investors to take more risk, but there's also a degree of recognition that some retail investors are natural risk takers and they want to invest in those enterprises as well. So I I can kind of see how this, this all adds up now, I think. Yeah, and I think there are several meme stocks that we're all familiar with where you could argue that that has been the case. So it's a great point. But anyway, Chris, back to the facts and back to your data. Did you get any insights as to what catalyzes the retail investor to trade on any given day? Yes. So I I think we gained a little bit more insight, but as is the way of these things, I think there's probably still a lot more to learn from even the available data. So the first thing is that retail investors tend to get involved when prices move. Now, That's true of institutional investors as well, of course, but the data indicated that retail investors are more sensitive to that. So as a result, retail market share tends to go up with volatility. And one of the more obvious manifestations of that was at the onset of the pandemic when we saw retail market share peak across European markets. Interesting. So prices moving is one catalyst for the retail investor. And was there any specific pattern to that movement? Yes. So one of the things that was also visible in the data was an association between an increase in retail activity and what you might call a a two-day run in the stock price. So two consecutive days in which prices move in the same direction. That was quite noticeable and significantly more so for retail than for non-retail activity. It's so interesting that you've observed that relationship between the two-day run in the stock and the increased retail participation, because that's exactly what we found in US markets quite independently when we were looking at the US retail investor, uh, particularly in the post-COVID period. So we found that if the stock has increased over the last two days, the retail investor is more likely to buy. And then if the stock has increased over the last two days and the retail investor has bought, then the stock has been more likely to outperform over the next five to 10 trading days. And therein, we found this 
trading signal that institutional investors could also exploit. So I guess in the US, I've always thought there's some sort of a virtuous feedback loop really between performance and retail flows, at least in the short term. And by the sounds of it, there's some sort of evidence of this taking place in Europe too. Yes, it's really interesting that you saw something similar in in the US. But I have a confession to make. When I first saw that connection between momentum and retail behavior in the European data, I I made a bit of a schoolboy error and I jumped to the conclusion that the retail activity was the cause of the momentum. So, you know, cause and effect was running in one direction. It was all the the retail investors that were causing that momentum. Yeah. And I I discounted the idea that that, that the, the retail investors were reacting to the momentum. Now, I, I think the reality is that probably at least somewhat similar to that dynamic that you see in the US where the causal direction is running both ways between momentum and retail activity. But the reason for my mistake was kind of revealing in itself. I had this picture in my head that European retail investors are relatively undynamic. So I was assuming they didn't really have enough data to react to intraday prices and therefore they would only react to what happened in the market on the prior day. Now, that turned out to be rubbish. It looks as though they are, in many cases, reacting to relatively recent changes in prices when they make their trading decisions. And I guess, you know, that that's pretty consistent with what you were saying earlier about retail investors really coming in all sorts of different forms. Totally. And it also links to this idea that the retail investor is just so much more informed nowadays. They may not be able to access real-time prices for free but they can certainly access slightly lagged prices for free on so many different platforms today. So I think I'm less surprised than you at this idea that the retail investor is actually quite heavily participating intraday. And it's worth saying that in the States, we have definitely found that. In fact, Peng Cheng, who's our research colleague, he's head of big data and AI strategies and is responsible for our US uh, retail trading flows data. He's done a lot of work on intraday retail trading to show that the retail investor really does react to specific catalysts intraday and specific macro data points like inflation, CPI prints intraday. So in a way, I think it's not surprising that the European retail investor should be, in some cases at least, for some cohorts, equally dynamic. And and just going back to that cause or effect question then, where in the US, we're pretty sure there's both a cause and effect relationship between price momentum and retail activity. Did you figure out the direction of causality in Europe? No, I don't think we did. I, th- I think we can say with a certain degree of confidence that investors are reacting to momentum events. Yeah. Um, I don't think we can say at this point whether they contribute to them. And, you know, the way I prepared that data set didn't really give enough granularity to do that. All of that said, I think there's actually enough data there to answer that question. I just think that now we know a little bit more about how dynamic they are, we need to look at that data set in a little bit more detail to answer that question. That makes sense. And I guess a lot of it will come down to the retail share of volume in Europe. Exactly. I think, you know, I think we both agree that at least in a lot of markets, it's it's nowhere near as significant as it in, is in the US. Yeah. Um, but again, I think we've also discussed that in some markets, it's it's getting quite close to the US figure. So possibly it's a, it's a case of market my market. Yes, exactly. And and in those markets and in those stocks where the retail share of volume is quite significant, I think it's much more plausible that the retail investor will be causing some of that momentum as well. Exactly, yeah. Great. So if we go full circle back to our discussion at the beginning around the decline in European volumes and turnover ratios over the years, how much, Chris, do you think the retail investor is actually propping up volumes here in Europe? 
Well, to be clear, those European turnover ratios have been in more or less steady decline since 2016. So I think propping up is probably a stretch, but might they be worse without it? Well, yes, quite possibly. Interestingly, in the markets where we see retail activity as being more prevalent, the turnover ratios tend to be quite elevated versus markets with lower retail market share. Quite a bit more than just the retail market share on its own would suggest. I don't think we quite know what cause and effect is there, though. Going back to this this discussion we had earlier about the democratization of content and the democratization of market data, I, I do think it's an interesting time to watch how the retail space evolves. And you know, I think if I had to put money on it going one way, it would be it's going to increase. So interesting. Thank you. And I guess the great news is you now have data to track that. So we can come back to that question in due course. Exactly, exactly. Well, I always try to end these conversations with the question of what's next on your plate. So, Chris, what are you looking at next? And and also, what are clients asking you for? Well, I think there's definitely a bit more work we can do on European retail. To our conversation earlier, I think there's more work to understand to the extent to which retail has an influence on the market, as opposed to being influenced by the market, which yeah. you know, I think we know that. And I also think that now we know that retail activity is actually quite dynamic. It's interesting to understand more about what triggers retail trading, particularly how it develops over the day, not just from day to day. Definitely. And I think your point about better understanding the retail investor's influence on the market, whether intraday or day to day, is so powerful. Because if you can figure that out and therefore infer predictive power, that is just such a valuable data set to all investors and and also institutional investors. So I'm really looking forward to following and, and staying close to your work there. Thank you very much, Eloise. It's been lovely to talk to you today. Absolutely. Well, likewise, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to explain all of that in detail and in a way that I and I hope our listeners will really be able to understand. Thank you also to our listeners for tuning in to this bi-weekly podcast from our group. If you'd like to access Chris's work and his analysis and conclusions on the European retail investor, do get in touch with one of us or indeed your sales representative here at JP Morgan. Alternatively, please do just go to our website at jpmorgan.com forward slash market dash data dash intelligence. And there you can always send us a message via the contact us form. And with that, we'll close. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Market Matters. If you've enjoyed this conversation, we hope you'll review, rate, and subscribe to JP Morgan's Making Sense to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. The views expressed in this podcast may not necessarily reflect the views of JP Morgan Chase & Co. and its affiliates. Together, JP Morgan. They are not the product of J.P. Morgan's research department and do not constitute a recommendation, advice, or an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any security or financial instrument. This podcast is intended for institutional and professional investors only and is not intended for retail investor use. It is provided for information purposes only. Referenced products and services in this podcast may not be suitable for you and may not be available in all jurisdictions. J.P. Morgan may make markets and trade as principal in securities and other asset classes and financial products that may have been discussed. For additional disclaimers and regulatory disclosures, 
please visit www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclosures forward slash sales and trading disclaimer. For the avoidance of doubt, opinions expressed by any external speakers are the personal views of those speakers and do not represent the views of J.P. Morgan.